Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Think about the Tea Party. Maybe I think we thought that the Republican Party was going to be defined by the Tea Party. Oh, Tea Party. Well, that sounds pretty quaint looking back. Things change, I guess, is the point. And so I do think there are traditionalists who sense that there's at least a possibility that the party reverts. This is Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland. This week might offer the clearest window into the future of what exactly the Republican Party could look like in 2024. The question is, is this an inflection point or just a random mile marker along the road? And that's a remarkable statement on where we are in politics, I think, that the president's historic second impeachment trial is, as you said, just a waypoint. I think that's true. I think that there are important things that we will see on the periphery of the trial. Our own David Siders is here to predict the future, or at least help us see through that window a little bit. I have a hard time believing that by the time the next primary rolls around, every discrete statement that a senator makes during the impeachment trial is going to be litigated again. But I do think that it is forming for voters' minds a more comprehensive you know, picture of how all of these senators are dealing with the aftermath of Trump. Here's the thing. It's almost certain that Democrats will not find the 17 Republican votes necessary to convict Trump in the Senate. After all, all but six Republican senators, Ben Sass, Mitt Romney, Pat Toomey, Susan Collins, Bill Cassidy, and Lisa Murkowski, voted early this week to declare the impeachment trial itself unconstitutional. And every other Republican, the political calculus points plainly to a vote to acquit. The message is clear. The Republican message is clear. Stay with the pack. But enter stage right, one of the most interesting characters for me at the moment, Republican Senator Ben Sass. And for Sass, there's a lot of things going on. A vote to convict could kind of further solidify his position in this anti-Trump wing of the Republican Party. And who knows, maybe with the possibility that he could be rewarded politically if the Republican electorate is less beholden to Trump by 2024. He's a little bit all over the map, right? <laughs> so... Meet Ben Sass. As a friend and fellow Republican, I want to shoot straight. He was elected to the Senate in 2014, and he had the support of some big names within the party, and not the establishment side of it. He had support from a lot of different quarters. Sarah Palin and Ted Cruz back that year held a rally for him. He will bring the values. He was taking on Mitch McConnell at the time. So he's a senator with this extremely, a very conservative voting record. And yet when it has come to Trump, he's been the probably the, the plainest, most outspoken voice uh, criticizing him and has been since since the beginning. I mean, if, if there's a never Trumper in the Senate, it's Ben Sass. Sass unequivocally blamed Trump for the deadly riot at the Capitol in January, enraging Republican activists in his home state. And he appears unlikely to back down. His family is treated the presidency like a business opportunity. He's flirted with white supremacists. He's obviously pretty um, plain-spoken, you could say. Famously, 
talking about Trump kissing dictators' butts. He kisses dictators' butts. And mocking evangelicals. But he has his friends. Like Sass admirers would say that you know, he's a principled senator who's taking an unpopular position because he believes it's right. And, of course, he also has enemies. Sass's critics would describe him as a condescending megalomaniac uh, who is entirely driven by ego and a, a sense of himself that is you know, far bigger than, than his current stature in the Senate would suggest it should be. Ah, so a politician. Politics is polarizing, it turns out. Anyway, the latest in all this is that Sass released this video last week. Now, many of you are hacked off that I condemned his lies that led to a riot. Let's be clear. The anger in the state party has never been about me violating principle or abandoning conservative policy. I'm one of the most conservative voters in the Senate. The anger has always been simply about me not bending the knee to one guy. And the video came as Republican activists in Nebraska were proposing that Sass be censured, calling him out in a big way for criticizing former President Donald Trump. You are welcome to censure me again, but let's be clear about why this is happening. It's because I still believe, as you used to, that politics isn't about the weird worship of one dude. The weird worship of one dude. If Mickey Mouse is the nominee, the state parties will get in line and the county parties will get in line. And if they don't, Mickey Mouse will install people who are in line. So... Right, well, it's, it's like Sass said, right? The cult worship of one weird mouse. <laughs> yeah, one weird mouse. To paraphrase. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that, uh, that really gets in your head. So, back to the subject at hand. Sass's video response to his fellow Nebraska Republicans going after the state central committee of his own party. I'm not going to spend any time trying to talk you out of another censure. I listen to Nebraskans every day, and very few of them are as angry about life as some of the people on this committee. Not all of you, but a lot. What was so striking, I think, about the video that got a lot of attention last week was not so much that he criticized Trump. Lots of Republicans are, are willing to criticize Trump's actions leading up to January 6th. I, I think what was different was that he was, you know, if not criticizing, at least directly challenging Trump's supporters. And that's, a, I, I think, a key distinction uh, between him and some of the other Trump critics. And besides going after his own state Republican officials who criticized him, who else was the weird worship of one dude comment supposed to challenge? That was a challenge to, you know, what, 80 percent of the Republican Party at the moment, who are still supportive of the president, that's a big fight to have, I think, or a big, uh, a big challenge to make. And so that's, I think, why that video was so striking. We're going to have to choose between conservatism and madness, between just trolling versus actually persuading the rising generation of Americans again. That's what I'm focused on. Yeah. And what, what was the reaction to it? Oh, censure. I, I, I mean, in, in various counties, at least in Nebraska. Yeah, you know, the re Republicans and county activists in Nebraska viewed this as condescending and elitist uh, from SAS and, and, you know, not listening and also dismissive, I think, of the county and what will eventually be the state party apparatus. The county parties in Nebraska are all censuring SAS. SAS won more votes in Nebraska than Trump did. So, you know, you can look at that vote total to see that the the wins of the, the wins, not the wins, of the electorate in Nebraska, you know, 
It's not for censuring SAS. It's not like I have some special knowledge or something about the wins of the Republican Party. I, I just think that sometimes the county party apparatus, and this is true of both Democrats and Republicans, it represents the most active, typically the most ideologically driven members of the party when most people who vote probably don't know who their county party chair is and probably aren't engaged to the degree that that any of those activists are. Yeah. And then, you know, among the the traditionalist Republicans, I think the reaction was quite positive. Uh, a little bit of glad to see it, glad I'm not the one doing it, uh, because I think there's still widespread belief that he won't win this fight, but they're glad to see it happening. Yeah. So what exactly is he up to, you think? I mean, is it obviously a bold move to come right at your your state party, your ostensible base like that. But who knows? I mean, maybe he's figuring there's a, there's a different base he's thinking about. Or maybe he's not thinking about any of that at all. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, to hear them say it, he's just uh, like any politician. You're, you're just saying the truth to people because that's what you promised you would do when you were elected. Um, so that's the, the party line. It, if there is a calculation for 2024 for him, the video itself doesn't seem that risky to me because Sass was already in the never Trump lane. So he was never going to, in the next two or three years, become a pro-Trump candidate or appeal to that base. And, and there is something to be said, I think, in politics for owning the lane you're in. And, and I think he did do something to corner that. So I don't view that as a huge risk that he took, uh, more of a, a cementing of, of where he is. It's interesting watching the Trump critics within the Republican Party, just by virtue of being Trump critics, get labeled as being you know, D.C. insiders. And Sass is a great example of this, especially considering, you know, obviously now he's a second-term senator, but he had never been elected to office in 2014. He ran as an outsider. I actually remember talking to an establishment-oriented Republican operative in 2014 who said, this guy is going to bring down the Senate and, you know, maybe the whole government with it. And we're all going to be talking about him in a few years. Was it, doesn't he have a scar on his head from falling in, off a hay bale or something? Uh, I mean, <laughs> there, there is some Nebraska lore to him, right? I did not know that. On the other hand, he's Harvard and Yale educated. And I think when people talk about insider, maybe they talk about it more um, generally than just D.C. Well, would he not be an insider if he had gone to Wharton? Like, <laughs> what are we talking right. about here? Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I think your point is right, that somehow Trump has managed, despite being in Washington, being president, to still be not the insider and the, you know, the everyman, which is really a, a baffling thing and, and was during the 2016 campaign, how this... New York real estate um, person and, and TV celebrity was somehow the voice of, of blue-collar Republicans. And the reason why all this is so interesting to us right now is that we're looking at a few things right now. We're looking at the very early days of the Republican Party post-Trump presidency. And we're also looking at former President Trump's impeachment trial in the Senate, where Sass is a juror, where he's also one of the self-appointed leaders of this small group of anti-Donald Trump Republicans left in elected office. And I think maybe there's a broader group that kind of work in Republican politics or who, who vote Republican sometimes, but again, the small group that's left in elected office. And again, he was one of six Republicans who voted with Democrats to call the impeachment trial constitutional in the first place. And there does seem to be this line of thinking that, okay, you know, maybe obviously they're very much in the minority of the party right now, but when you look at history, or maybe not even history, maybe even if just a few years down the line, maybe voters are going to be in a different place at some point in the near future. 
I mean, I think that's the big bet, right? And the great unknown. And most of the money right now is on 80% of the electorate being with Trump. Or, you know, even a more modest appraisal of Trump's situation would be, let's say that he does bleed support over the next couple of years and it gets down to, you know, heck, what if it's even as low as 25% support within the party for Trump? That's a huge voting block in a what's going to be a really crowded Republican primary. So, you know, there's a chance that being anti-Trump right now is disqualifying, that uh, you, you just simply can't get over that hurdle, that it's a litmus test and it means failure in 2024. But I do think there are some traditionalists taking a different view of this, saying things change over, over time. Look at, you know, I, you hear people bring up Nixon leaving and how divided the party was, you know, w- when he left office. And then, what, six years later, Reagan's on the scene and an entirely new Republican Party. Think about the Tea Party. Maybe I think we thought that the Republican Party was going to be defined by the Tea Party. And, you know, it still has, its legacy still has influence, obviously, over over the party. But it's not, you know, things change, I guess, is the point. And so I do think there are traditionalists who who sense that there's at least a possibility that the party reverts. Yeah. No, and, you know, the thing that jumps out at me about that comparison is that, you know, maybe the legacy of the Tea Party is maybe just a little bit different than we understood it at the time. I think you could probably say the same of Nixon and the way he ran and the way he kind of constructed his base. Maybe a little bit different a decade further on looked a little bit different than it did at at the time. And and there's a bit of a through line there. And, of course, this matters because you, you wrote recently the next week will offer the clearest window yet into the top contenders assessment of the party's post-Trump landscape. And you're talking there about Republicans who may have designs on being president one day. Well, at least from the senators, and keep in mind the, the people outside the Senate have a little bit more latitude because they're not being asked to comment on every you know, turn of the screw. So somebody like a, a Chris Christie is in a really interesting position, right? Because he's, he's come out very critically afterwards. He wasn't before. I think in the Senate... What we're seeing is is much of what we saw before is trying to walk a balance where even I mean, Hawley sent out a, a fundraising appeal on the opening day of, of impeachment. And it was not about Trump. Um, it was about Democrats. It was embracing the opposition lane that they now have or they all have and, and you know, appealing for money on the idea that Democrats are wasting time, aren't doing anything. They're they're caught up in partisan rancor. It was the same message from Ted Cruz, who I think is also making this argument. So, and also Marco Rubio, um, same thing, that this is a waste of time by, by Democrats. So really what, what they're doing is, is kind of a two-pronged, A, this is unconstitutional, and B, Democrats should be governing and passing policy instead of impeaching the president, which, I mean, is a little bit rich because you expect every one of these Republicans to vote against um, every policy that, that Democrats end up advancing. If you're one of these Republican senators at this trial, yeah. they're not going to be delivering prepared remarks. They're serving as as jurors. And if you were going to be one of these senators trying to defend Trump, what would you say? But I think you just did say it. There, I, the defense is is kind of look over there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and also I get you know with a little bit of this isn't constitutional uh, on top. And this is a decent microcosm, I think, for how the party thinks they get past Trump, which is just to stop talking about him. I don't know how effective that's going to be because Trump himself is going to have something to say about this. This is the bet that some people have been making for now going on close to six (laughs) years, and it has yet to pay off. I mean, maybe we're talking about like a really long game here, and they're like buying the stock as low as you can get it. But like, I I think you're right. (laughs) 
he will continue to be involved, yeah. but possibly in a diminished capacity. I mean, a traditionalist who, who wants to be done with Trump in his you know, wildest dreams thinks that if Trump is not, his numbers have moved down, not hugely, but they've moved down a little bit. And we're what, three weeks, four weeks past uh, the end of his presidency. And, you know, there's two and a half years until we get going with the next Republican primary. So in the best case scenario for a Republican who wants to be done with Trump, he's facing criminal charges, civil cases, new things are emerging as did about Ukraine the other day. So yeah, the hope obviously has been there forever and it hasn't been realized yet for people who want it to go that way. But I wouldn't foreclose the possibility that it still could. The, the, that it still could, that he could just kind of fade without the fuel of that's uh, right. the constant attention and certainly, you know, his social media that now in this kind of different post-presidential, post-Twitter landscape, that maybe the conditions are actually ripe for this losing bet to finally win. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a likelihood, but I don't think it's a, a zero possibility. Yeah. Looking at some of the, the votes that have happened so far, and obviously things could change. I mean, you mentioned things continue to keep coming out about Trump, and mm-hmm. we've got the, the trial going on right now. But it, it would it would take some sort of massive monumental change. Almost all the Republican senators have voted to say that this trial itself is not constitutional for anything to happen other than Donald Trump getting acquitted. Yeah, I think what would have to happen is that his public approval rating among Republicans in the next like four days would have to plummet to uh, 11%. I hate to suggest that... <laughs> Uh, the the trial is political in any way, but I think there's a reason we see a, a partisan um, a vote on all of these. You've been writing about like the broad political trends of the Trump era for a few years now, and I'm curious if anything now kind of sticks out to you as something you noticed at the time, but in in retrospect was was a much bigger deal <laughs> uh, and and kind of explained a lot going forward because we don't know if if right now is going to be that that kind of moment. I mean, we have some kind of broad expectation that it could be. But it's unknowable. That's interesting. I think maybe uh, it would be the the things that seemed so monumental maybe did not end up being so much. And, you know, we talk about the fractures in the Republican Party right now. For how long were Democrats convinced that they could be in real trouble because of fractures in the, the Democratic Party? And, the you know, could the coalitions come together? That obviously didn't end up prohibiting. It didn't it didn't fell Biden right in mm-hmm. November. Yeah. And, and I think. Also concerns that were raised about Biden's candidacy. So, you know, does he have an organization? Can he raise money? All these things that seemed hugely influential at the time and and meaningful turned out to be much less so. So I think the lesson of the last primary was maybe that you can overread some of the daily events to think that they're, they're very, very important to the end. And they're not. And so that's why I think it's worth having an open mind, at least, about the possibility of where the electorate might be uh, in either party in four years, three years. That's a pretty garbage answer, Scott. I don't know what the hell to tell you. <laughs> the little things didn't matter? Oh, no, no, that's not going to work. I mean, there was a lot we missed. I, I think, I mean, we got the suburban erosion. We knew that about Trump, right? We knew that was going away. Yeah, I guess what here, here, one thing we missed is how poorly Trump was doing with whites, uh, at least until very, very late uh, in the campaign, and how that was an area where, you know, of softness. But I don't, I mean, I don't know. We saw that as soon as we saw, he also drove out turnout to some huge degree. Yeah. I think it was the things that we thought were a big deal that weren't. I think it was all the little things. The Biden doesn't have organization. The Biden can't 
you know, run a campaign in Iowa, which is the same. You hear this about Ben Sass too. He doesn't have any organization. How can he, he run? And obviously he's not a former vice president, but, but all these things that seem true in politics, right? Or how can this aged, you know, moderate Democrat win a Democratic primary um, filled with young progressives and people of color? Yeah. Future is a funny thing. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think we need to have an open mind about it, uh, that the, the electorate right now is with Trump. But I don't think that that means that – I mean, think how quickly his coalition came together. Uh, these party chairs who are censuring everybody were the ones saying, you know, not Trump, not Trump. And and then mm-hmm. – and I do think that's a lesson too in that we may give – it's easy to write about county chairs and state parties because they have phone numbers online and they have like titles that people care about uh, and are part of the organization. But the state party apparatus is – a shell of itself. Mm-hmm. It's not what it used to be. It doesn't make candidates anymore. I imagine you you just you know spending your days kind of uh, flipping a rolodex, you know, picking a state, <laughs> calling calling the county chairs there to to put a finger on the pulse. No, yeah, I am on the phone a lot, and I love calling county chairs. The cool thing about it is they want to talk. Like the the reason that they're activists in the party is they they like talking about party politics, mm-hmm. and you know. There's something about local political organizing, which is, I don't know, it, it, there's something refreshing about it because you're talking to somebody who, yeah, they're watching the impeachment hearing, but they're also preparing for, you know, the summer's nine parades that the county will be in. And they need to, you know, put together the fiberglass elephant and get it on the float so that they can get out to Ripon, Wisconsin, or wherever they're doing <laughs> their parade. And I, I think there is something, well, there's something refreshing about that. And, and I like... I, I do like talking to people who are engaged in politics locally. I, I, so I, I don't think that they have the power and the influence that they used to, that the, the party apparatus used to. Um, it's not the machine anymore, but, but they are in touch. And, and so that, that's illuminating. David, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to join us to talk all about this. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, that is our show. Our producer is Annie Reese. Our senior producer is Jenny Ahmed. And our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. Our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. And while you're at it, check out some of our other podcasts, Politico Dispatch, Politico Energy, and Pulse Check, just to name a few. We'll talk to you again next week.